This is episode number 40 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. This is your usually bi-weekly program where we take a honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to do so. Unlike the rest of the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast are most definitely not compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please make sure you remember to subscribe to it, rate, review it. Also, follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Individual1Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. On this July 3rd, the day before the 4th of July holiday here in the United States of America, lots to talk about. And I guess I want to start with how amazing it is that just a couple of days ago, In fact, the last time we did a podcast, which was on Sunday here in Los Angeles, where we do the Individual One podcast, the the big story was that Donald Trump had, for no apparent reason other than it was a good photo op, decided to, at the last second, after basically doing a grinder date situation on Twitter with Kim Jong-un, hey, you up, let's go, Uh, can we meet up at the DMZ? And they apparently put this all together at the last moment and you know, had this uh, quickie date where Trump makes, quote unquote, history by being the first American president into the DMZ, into North Korea. And, you know, this got obviously, understandably, huge news coverage. It was completely absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. I, I mean, there's so many different ways to describe this. But when you get absolutely nothing in return and you give the other guy a brutal tyrant who has killed Americans, including, including Otto Wambier, and then basically sent his almost dead body back to America and somehow Trump took credit for that. And then you know now Wambier's family is, is nowhere near as warm to Trump as they were at that time because of his sucking up to Kim Jong-un. But when you give Kim Jong-un everything he could possibly want – You get absolutely nothing in return except a photo op for you. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, giving the girl an engagement ring before you've even really gone on a second date. I mean, this is being incredibly too eager uh, on the part of Trump. And what's fascinating to me is that that it's the exact opposite of his persona with his cult-like followership. The persona of his cult-like followership is that he's the alpha male. He is the deal maker, the art of the deal. But this is the brilliance of Donald Trump. He knows, or at least I think he knows, his own weaknesses. And then he exaggerates. He goes in the opposite direction. So he actually claims his weaknesses to be strengths. Therefore, very few people, at least not that want to like him, will come to the conclusion of what his real vulnerabilities are. In other words... He's actually a wuss. He's actually a beta male. He actually wimps out all the time. He's actually a horrible negotiator. But when you claim all those things to be strengths, it's much more difficult for people to go, wait a minute, he's not just lying. He's 180 degrees lying. Correct. And that's part of what Trump's genius is. So his cult perceives what happens with Kim Jong-un as some sort of brilliant three-dimensional, six-dimensional, eight-dimensional chess, when if Barack Obama did it, they would be going bananas. Correct. I mean, hair on fire 24-7 in the conservative media and, and what have you. But 
the the cult the cult doesn't understand the dangers of this. I love the poorly educated. They don't understand the precedents that it sets. They don't understand the weapons that it takes away from future presidents in dealing with Kim Jong Un in particular, because he's likely going to be around for quite a while, longer than Trump will be as president of the United States, or other tyrants and dictators like him. I, I mean, another bizarre analogy just came off the top of my head. It's it's like when you take your kid to go see, uh, you know, relatives and they shower them with gifts, right, for no particular reason. That makes your job as a parent more difficult because now they've been further spoiled. The gifts mean nothing. Now they're expecting gifts at all times for doing nothing or for no particular occasion. And that's what future presidents are going to be like. Wait a minute, Kim Jong-un got all these gifts for nothing. Well, how are, they gonna, how are we going to get Kim Jong-un to do anything in the future when he got everything he wanted by giving nothing? So, but what's amazing about this, this is already a forgotten story. <laughs> this is already, even as huge as this should be, I see almost no media coverage of this at all. Now, I'm sure that once Trump is no longer in office, when that'll be, we'll talk more about as we go along in this episode of the of the Individual One podcast, I'm sure one day somebody who was there is going to write a book and it's going to be horrifying about what really happened behind the scenes with regard to Donald Trump, with regard to all sorts of tyrants, dictators, and everything that happened at the G20 summit. But for now, it's a dead story, except you can make a draw a very straight line between Donald Trump's admiration for tyrants and dictators like Putin and like Kim Jong-un and like others, you can draw a straight line from that to what he's planning tomorrow with regard to the 4th of July celebration at the Lincoln Memorial. Correct. Uh, What is currently scheduled. Now, I know a lot of people are rooting for the thunderstorms that are forecast to come in and, and blow the whole event away. But what is currently scheduled is unbelievable. I mean, it is something that I never would have thought was possible in the United States of America. A president of the United States, just before an election year, essentially in an election cycle, is turning our most sacred national holiday, the 4th of July, into a campaign rally for himself, literally, which would be bad enough. That would be bad enough, especially when he's doing using tax dollars to do it. Apparently, National Park uh, Service fees are being transferred to partially fund this boondoggle. That would be bad enough on an ethical standpoint. But the fact that he's doing it, wrapping himself in the military with military tanks being used as part uh, of this bizarre self-aggrandizing event is so beyond inappropriate so beyond anything I could have possibly imagined, and so in keeping with his admiration for the people who do this in other countries, like a Vladimir Putin, like a Kim Jong-un. I mean, it's also emblematic of the fact that the guy probably has a small penis, but more importantly than that, it's indicative of how he has this bizarre fetish for being a dictator, being a king. These are the, these are the things that third world countries do. The dictatorships do, not the United States of America, and not on the 4th of July, which is a celebration of almost everything that is the opposite of what Trump is doing. 
So the way this thing is being portrayed, it's beyond comprehension to me. You cannot be serious. But apparently it's going to happen, weather permitting. And here's the, the, the crux of this thing that's really going to drive liberals bananas. I mean, I'm a conservative and it drives me nuts. But I actually think there's a way that Trump ends up either winning or politically coming to a draw on this thing, depending on how it you know, how it plays, how it looks, you know, whether the weather interferes, that kind of thing. But I think there's a scenario here where Trump at worst ends up suffering no damage politically. And here's what I mean by that. And this is not unique to this situation, but this one might be one of the more dramatic examples. We have a circumstance now where Trump is so outside the norm. He is so outrageous. He is so infuriating that he has effectively broken the opposition. They've gone nuts. They've absolutely gone nuts. Now, not on everything. On some things, they're dead right. On this, I think they're probably mostly right. But it's the way that that nuttiness will be perceived by both his cult and his followers and the Republican Party and those who are leaning towards supporting him. That's what will play right into Trump's hands. And here's what I mean by that. The, the teeth gnashing and the outrage that the left has already expressed over this and will express over this 4th of July celebration, assuming it goes down as portrayed, is going to be perceived as the left being against patriotism and against the military and against the 4th of July. Now, that's nuts. That's crazy. But that's the way it will be perceived. And part of why it will be perceived that way is the left has already set themselves up in this country for being perceived that way. This is the price that the left pays, for instance, just, just this very week. It's, and it's not necessarily all that coincidental. Just this very week, one of the biggest controversies uh, politically, or at least culturally, is that the Nike Corporation— you know, they make, uh, you know, your sneakers and your athletic gear. The Nike Corporation decided to not, to not produce, as had been planned, a Betsy Ross flag, American flag themed shoe. And they did so, and this is the part that is just unbelievable. They did so at the request of former NFL quarterback, now civil rights fraud, Colin Kaepernick. It's just flat out ridiculous. So so let's redo the math on this. Colin Kaepernick, a liberal hero who is a fraud. Okay, I'm a former football coach, covered football, college and pro level, football fan all my life. I got nothing against Colin Kaepernick, but he would not be in the NFL regardless, regardless of his position on the American flag. In my opinion, Colin Kaepernick saw an opportunity. He was playing in San Francisco, the most liberal city in the entire country. He saw the handwriting on the wall that his career was in grave jeopardy, and he jumped on a political, he grew out his afro, and he jumped on a political issue that he knew would play well with the left so that he might have a second career, and it worked out way, way better than he could possibly have ever imagined. Why? Because the left has lost their freaking mind on these issues. And so they embrace anybody who goes up against Trump, no matter how wrong they are, no matter how fraudulent they are, no matter how self-interested they are. And so now 
We got a situation where two days before the before the fourth of freaking July, Nike announces they're not going to make an American flag shoe, which would be bad enough. But they're not doing it because Colin freaking Kaepernick, Colin freaking Kaepernick has told them it's a bad idea to do so. You cannot be serious. Okay, so with this as the backdrop, with this as the backdrop, when the left is celebrating the fact that. Nike won't produce an a Betsy Ross American flag themed shoe. Now all of a sudden, the the outrage over Trump's Fourth of July event gets perceived slightly differently. Partially, this is subconscious, but this is part of a very long phenomenon. This is just one important data point and something that's gone on for years. And now I don't know whether or not Trump is smart enough to realize this. This is one of those things where does he is he lucky or is he a freaking genius? I honestly don't know. But the reality is because he has so broken the left, because they've gone so bananas, and because they have so given up the issue of patriotism. And I'm going to get to this further with regard to Joe Biden and the Democratic nominee uh, contenders in a, mu- in a minute, because this is a really important point that no one else but John Ziegler is mentioning. The Democratic Party, especially if they do not nominate Joe Biden, is ceding just completely, 100 percent, several major topics that maybe don't seem like voting topics, but they are. Because it's how the modern voter, especially the swing voter, that's not really vested in policy, doesn't really follow the news that carefully. They go more by their feelings and their what they perceive to be their own self-interest. And patriotism is one of those key topics, subjects, issues that the Democrats are, by and large, totally ceding to Donald Trump. They are letting Donald Trump own patriotism. Now, that alone would not necessarily be a loser in a, in a presidential election. You could argue that Barack Obama in 2008 against John McCain, war hero, was effectively ceding patriotism to the Republican Party. And that did not end up having Democrats win that election. But there are a lot of other factors going on there, including the fact that Barack Obama is a once in a generation talent from a political perspective. And there was an economic collapse a month before the election. So so patriotism alone doesn't guarantee, especially where we're going in the United States, a, a, a loss on the presidential front. But it doesn't help especially against an incumbent president. And that's what Democrats are doing. And their reaction to the July 4th uh, boondoggle that Trump appears to be trying to pull off here, and I think it's even worse than a boondoggle. I think it's dangerous and it sets a horrible precedent for the future. But I digress that 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 reaction is going to be perceived through that prism as them further giving up patriotism patriotism is they they hate everything that's associated with patriotism they they will automatically uh, disregard anything that even appears to be patriotic even the american flag on a damn nike shoe in celebration of betsy ross who was supposed to be the person who designed the american flag even during the week of the july 4th holiday So I actually, even though it's insane, I actually think there's a scenario where this doesn't hurt Trump and it might even subconsciously help him. Now, it's not just patriotism that the Democrats appear to be ready to cede to Donald Trump. 
And there's a big difference. Let me make this clear. There's a big difference between seeding an issue at 100% and seeding it at 30 or 40%, or maybe to reverse the numbers, you know, 60 or 70%. It's okay to seed an issue, not that I would seed patriotism, but it's okay. you can get away with seeding an issue at 60 to 70%. But when you seed it at 100%, that's very dangerous, especially when it's not the issue, only issue you're doing that on. I would submit that on the issues of patriotism, on the issues of capitalism, on the issue of maleness, and here's the one that will really drive people crazy, the issue of whiteness, on those four topics, patriotism, capitalism, maleness, and whiteness, it appears as if the Democratic Party is going to cede all four of those 100% to Donald Trump. 100%. Now, in other words... It is a bad thing to be a male. It is a bad thing to be white. It is a bad thing to be capitalist. And it is a bad thing to be patriotic. That, that is, at least in perception, the position of most of the major Democratic presidential candidates. So if you're going to give Donald Trump, who embraces all four of those, he embraces patriotism, whether it's fake or real is another question. He embraces capitalism as far as a perception is concerned, even though I don't think he's nearly as conservative on that front as most people do. He embraces his maleness, even though it's fake maleness, and he embraces his whiteness, even though it's rooted in racism, a lot of it, or at least racism among his followers. So I'm not saying that those are necessarily four good things in the way that Trump embraces them, but I'm talking about public perception here. And when Trump embraces all four of those things in the 2020 election, that is really dangerous to go up against. Now in 2040, in 2040, that's not going to be a losing hand, in my opinion, unfortunately. In 2040, I think uh, just about any candidate can run against patriotism, capitalism, maleness, and whiteness and be just fine. I don't think that's a big issue. But going up against a, an incumbent with an electoral college somewhat advantage in 2020 before a lot of white people die off, I think is very, very dangerous. Now, this is an issue that I tried to bring up in an interview that I did last night that was fairly contentious, although maybe not as much as I expected. I was going in. I was expecting this was going to be a real knockdown drag out fight. It got pretty heated. You can decide for yourself how to describe it. But I did this interview for a couple of reasons, and we're going to play the entire thing for you here. This is with a host who's very well known in America who does a show called The Young Turks. He's very liberal progressive. His name is Jenk. By the way, I mispronounced his name one at least one time during this interview you're about to hear. I feel really badly about it because I know his name is pronounced Jenk, even though it's spelled C-E-N-K. But for some reason, my brain just did not function properly, uh, and I said the name uh, incorrectly. But regardless, uh, I, this particular host has tried to make the argument that Joe Biden is the least electable candidate for the Democrats. He wrote a column to that, uh, to that uh, effect, and I had appeared on his show a few weeks ago uh, about another topic involving Donald Trump, and I contacted the producers and I said, look, I really disagree with his column that Joe Biden is the least electable of the Democratic major candidates. 
Uh, in fact, I think he's the most electable of the major candidates, those that can actually win the nomination. I think there's only four or five people now that can win the nomination. I'll get to that momentarily. But uh, if you're interested, I would love to debate Jenk about this particular issue. They said, sure, let's do it. And so uh, we did it last night. And here in its entirety is that, I guess you'd call it a debate between the host of the Young Turks and me over the issue of electability and the 2020 election. John, welcome back, brother. How you doing? Thanks so much for having me. This should be interesting. I indeed. All right. My case against Joe Biden is Joe Biden. Uh, so just look at what he's done over the last week. It's been an epic disaster. So I'll let you start first. Well, what's your case for Joe Biden as a more electable candidate? Well, first of all, I don't even like Joe Biden. I think he's a gaffe machine. Uh, I disagree with him on almost all major issues. Uh, but I think you and I share, I hope we do, a, a primary goal in this 2020 election, which is that the cancer that is Donald Trump be removed from the presidency of the United States. And the best metaphor I can come up with is uh, we have a cancer and what it appears as if at least the progressive wing of the Democratic Party wants to do is to propose a sex change operation instead of a cancer operation. <laughs> and that's my biggest problem here is I think you guys understandably, and you know this is the way that liberals seem to work. They go with their feelings. They, they wanna be excited. They wanna fall in love uh, instead of actually getting the job done. Now, I believe that beating Donald Trump is a national imperative. It's a national emergency. And when your house is on fire and you have only one child in the house and your only child is about to burn up, when you go in to save the child, you don't stick around and try to find the money that you saved underneath the bed. You get the child and you get him out of the house. Joe Biden is the safest, most direct route to getting the child out of the burning building. And that's Joe Biden, because we already know this election is going to be decided in four states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida. And by far, by far, especially in Pennsylvania, especially in Florida, Joe Biden does better than any of the major contenders. There's only only four or five people that can win the Democratic nomination. And of those, Joe Biden is the one who most safely, most predictably defeats Donald Trump. It might not be that exciting for Democrats. Uh, it might not be good for ratings for the media, but it does get rid of Donald Trump. And to me, that's the primary purpose yeah. here. So, John, your analogies were weird, uh, <laughs> but I'll leave them alone. Uh, so let's let's talk about the the core of it. But you didn't state any facts there, John. So you keep saying well, I got Biden. plenty. Of no, that's okay. That's why we're going to have the conversation. You keep saying Biden is more electable, but uh, without any evidence. So. Uh, Number one, uh, the person that lost to Donald Trump was Hillary Clinton, a centrist Democrat like Joe Biden. So uh, why we have one incredibly important data point, which is that centrist Democrats lose to Donald Trump. So uh, the one part we definitely agree on, and you're right about this, is that we must, must, must beat Donald Trump. So I don't want to take any chances. That's why I don't want it to be Joe Biden, because that would appear to be making the same exact mistake we made last time. Well, I understand that, and I think you're misreading it. First of all, in 2016, we had the Russian influence, which may or may not uh, still be in play in 2020. Uh, you also had the Comey influence, which clearly will not be in play in 2020. I think without James Comey, Hillary Clinton wins Pennsylvania, uh, wins Wisconsin, wins Michigan, and this is a ball game. Uh, to me, uh, so it's, it's unfair to say that Joe Biden is exactly the same as Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton had some unique problems with regard to likability, especially in a place like Pennsylvania, which is ironic since she had Pennsylvania roots. 
But I believe that, and I'm, a, I'm someone who grew up in Pennsylvania. I know Pennsylvania exceedingly well. Pennsylvania is a place where Joe Biden is going to play a hell of a lot better than Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or even Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. That's just the facts of it. That's just the reality. The polls show this consistently and no, constantly don't. and overwhelmingly. And so if you're going to cede, no, tell me this, Sink. If you're going to cede Pennsylvania and Florida, I'll give you Wisconsin and Michigan. Tell me the candidate other than Biden that wins a state other than Florida or Pennsylvania, because you need a big one. And if you don't get a big one, you're going to lose. Which is the candidate and what's the state? Yeah, first of all, there's two different answers to that. First of all, almost all of them beat Trump and handily, and that's according to the polling. That's in a popular vote, okay. that's not electoral college. And, and, and secondly, if you're asking who's the most electable candidate, and not based on my opinion, but based on the polling, Currently, Biden and Bernie Sanders are tied, beating both beating Donald Trump by 12 points, which is a yeah. monstrous lead. Okay, now third of all, if you get into my opinion, which is also based on the polling, but based on the polling of the issues, the Democrats stand a far better chance of winning Pennsylvania, Florida, and all those states if they actively fight for the policies that are incredibly popular. So for example, 76% of Americans want to raise taxes on the rich. Elizabeth Warren would do that, Bernie Sanders would do that. I'm not sure any of the rest of them would do that. And it, Medicare for all, just a new poll came out. Even after all of the negative press and all the negative attention, not just from Fox News, but CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, they all crap all over it. And still, when you explain to people, Yes, it'll take away your private insurance, but you'll still have the same provider. It's at 56% approval. So it's actually deeply popular. You know why? Because in Pennsylvania and Florida, they're sick of low wages. They're sick of their kids not having health care. And they actually want someone to do something about it. And these candidates say, we're going to bring you that positive change. Whereas Biden says, I'm not going to bring you any change. That's a terrible strategy. Cenk, this is not the way uh, modern voters actually vote. Uh, with regard to Bernie Sanders, I would venture to guess that a majority of Americans don't even know that Bernie Sanders is not a member of the Democratic Party. So you want to take a, refer a referendum on Donald Trump, which is what a 2020 election should be, a referendum on whether you want four more years of this insanity, and you want to take that referendum and you want to make it a referendum on socialism versus capitalism with an old Jewish guy. Good luck with that, Cenk. Good luck. There's no way that's going to work, whether it's Pennsylvania, Florida, or whatever. You, you're, you're taking an easy victory, a referendum on Trump, and you're turning it into one on socialism. You are seeding, the liberal progressive wing of the Democratic Party or whatever the liberal movie you want to call it, is seeding to Donald Trump patriotism, capitalism, maleness, and whiteness. That's a recipe for winning the 2040 election, not the 2020 election. You got to wait until a lot of uh, competent white males die, which is going to happen soon. You ought to be just patient. You can This strategy will work great in 2040, but it will not work great in 2020 against Donald Trump. Yeah. So, John, again, uh, I dispute uh, the facts. Uh, so, uh, or, or as you're stating them as obvious, and they are not. So, let me explain. Um, you say you want a referendum on Donald Trump, but that's exactly the campaign that Hillary Clinton ran. But it turned out it wasn't a campaign of Donald Trump versus you know, a blank slate. It was Donald Trump versus the establishment. And the American people were so angry, so frustrated that they said, and I remember this bumper sticker, it said Meteor 2016. And that's exactly what they got. They got an orange flaming meteor 
and they preferred that to the establishment candidate. In this case, Joe Biden is the establishment candidate. We already had that fight and we already lost that fight. I'm never gonna make that mistake again. Whereas well, in the case of a- Enjoy the next four years of Donald Trump. Uh, because John, that's you what, keep saying that, but without any facts get. to back it up. I'm just warning you of what's gonna happen. No. See, you, you guys don't understand I'm, I'm not asking for people to uh, cater to never Trumpers like myself. We're we're one percent of the population at best. That's not it. We are people who understand Trump's appeal to Middle America. We are warning you the wrong way to go about doing this. You are underestimating the problems that Hillary Clinton had as a personal candidate that Joe Biden does not have. And frankly, I I, I hate this as a as a, a father of two daughters. Being a woman was one of them. For whatever reason, America does not like electing a woman president. The facts are pretty clear on that. Joe Biden is not a woman. So, so therefore, it is not an analogous situation to place him as the Hillary Clinton of 2016. There are some significant differences, but more importantly, Who's the replacement? Who's the better path? Who is a safer path? There's nobody of those who can win the nomination that I've already mentioned that can, you still haven't told me which state they win other than Pennsylvania and Florida, which are off the table, in my opinion, if you don't have Biden as your candidate. Okay, look, I'm gonna give you specific answers and then talk about, again, philosophically why you're wrong. The specific answers is Bernie Sanders is up in by double digits in almost every one of the states that you mentioned. Now you can't believe that because of your be perspective. Nominee. He's not but, gonna be the nominee. But John, you're asking me and I'm telling you facts, I'm telling you polling. I'm telling you, you can't believe, John, listen. Can we revisit 2016 real quick on Bernie Sanders? Bernie Sanders was never seriously considered by the majority of the American people because they never thought he had a shot against Hillary Clinton and that's accurate. Therefore, they don't even know he is a socialist and if he's the candidate, it's a referendum on socialism. And oh, by the way, Donald Trump Trump is gonna spend every single rally reading those wacky pornos uh, uh, essays that he wrote in the 1970s, Bernie Sanders did. John, Donald Trump. Have fun with that, good luck with that. Donald Trump sexually harasses, assaults, and I'm rapes not women. I'm rational, I'm telling okay. you what's gonna happen. Okay. And, and, and John, you keep repeating things as if your perspective must be correct, but you're wrong. First of all, all that uh, that the media has ever talked about in regards to Bernie Sanders is socialist, socialist, socialist. And do you know that on election day, they did a poll back in 2016 of Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. Sanders won by 12 points. Mm -hmm. So yes, now I know they would have run a campaign. I know they would have run a campaign, but Bernie Sanders would have also been part of that campaign. He would have gotten the punch back and he had a 12 point buffer that Hillary Clinton didn't have. He was so never seriously considered by, by the you, by the American people. He was very seriously considered and the polling indicates that. You keep telling me that the they American people are wrong, but it's just they not true. And show me the poll that 90% of American people know that Bernie Sanders is a socialist and then I'll start That's listening all that anyone ever says about Bernie Sanders. No, but that's, that doesn't mean the American people know it. 40% of the American people pay no attention to the politics at all, zero. They have no clue and then they so, tune John, in in a presidential election, which Bernie Sanders was not part of. John, so last thing here is we're out of time is, look, you mentioned Bernie Sanders Jewishness. You've talked about America's not ready for a female candidate and you, you mentioned whiteness earlier. But John, I, I heard all of these things when I advocated for Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton. And everybody said there's no way that America is gonna elect a black guy, let alone a guy named Barack Hussein Obama. And you guys were wrong about that. And, and I've heard all of this naysayer okay. stuff before. 
But what the media is ignoring, and I think in this case you're ignoring, John, is that people actually care about the central message. And the central message that Obama had, which I think was slightly misleading in his case, was change, which is what people want. And they cared about that more than they cared about his middle name or his complexion. And in the case of Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, what they're saying is, no, we're gonna bring you a lot of change. We're gonna bring you higher wages, we're gonna bring you health care, and we're not part of the establishment that's been screwing you for 40, 50 years, and we're not this monster Donald Trump. That is a winning strategy. Well, I'll give you this, if you can find another Barack Obama, who's an amazing orator and a tremendous campaigner, and you can put him up against McCain Palin, and you can get an economic collapse at the perfect time, you might have a shot at beating an incumbent President Donald Trump, which John McCain was not. It's not analogous to 2020. You don't have Barack Obama. You only get one Tiger Woods. You had your Tiger Woods, and now you're about to let Donald Trump get reelected because you're looking for another once-in-a-lifetime candidate, which was Barack Obama. So good luck with that. All right, John. Is you know, last time uh, we did a segment together, we agreed on Donald Trump, uh, giving people a misleading impression that we agree overall. I'm glad that we have disabused people of that notion today. <laughs> I think we accomplished that, Jake. All right. I'm glad that Jenk uh, enjoyed that. Uh, you can decide uh, who got the better of the exchange there. If there was one thing that I uh, forgot to mention or didn't have the opportunity to do so, with regard to this idea that uh, that Joe Biden would be Hillary Clinton 2.0, which I understand is an enticing concept to a lot of liberals. On paper, there are some similarities, but there's some significant differences. I mentioned some of them in the interview, but the one that I did not mention in the interview, which may be the most important, and I'm kicking myself for, for not uh, putting it on the list, is that in 2016, there was a huge complacency issue with the liberal base, especially in Wisconsin and Michigan, with regard to whether or not Trump could actually win. Most people did not think he could win. Correct. And that played right into his hands because the numbers, and I've looked at the numbers very, very carefully, the numbers in Wisconsin and Michigan, which are two states that Trump won that no one expected him to do so, did not occur because there was some hidden Trump fan base that came out of the woodwork and blew the doors off of the turnout numbers. That's not what happened in Wisconsin and in Michigan. That is part of what happened in Pennsylvania and Florida, which is why part of why I keep mentioning Pennsylvania and Florida as being the keys to this 2020 election and why Joe Biden should be, if they want to win, an undestroyed Joe Biden. That's an important point, undestroyed, because they're in the process of, of, of knocking his legs out from under him, in which case he's, he might not be the most electable once they get done with him. But a, a, a currently intact Joe Biden does much better in Pennsylvania and Florida than anybody else, because in Pennsylvania and Florida, the demographics are such that for whatever reason— well, the part of its, I think, race is that Donald Trump's base turns out in huge numbers in those two states. That's not what happened in Wisconsin and Michigan. That happened because those two states, I think Russia played a role in this. I really do, because the Russian strategy was voter suppression and they focused on Wisconsin and Michigan. And it's an amazing coincidence, amazing coincidence that Hillary's 
voter turnout in Wisconsin and Michigan was the worst of any state that mattered in the entire country. That's an amazing coincidence, Correct. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's an amazing coincidence. Uh, I think that the voter suppression uh, effort by the Russians uh, had an impact. Whether it was the deciding factor, I don't know. You, I've, I've written that you can make a strong argument that it was because the numbers are just so amazing. But why that doesn't matter for 2020 is this. Obviously, the complacency issue is no longer there because we already know Donald Trump can win. And we've seen by that point four years of what happen, happens when he does win. So if you can't, and this boggles my mind because I, I do still see liberals and I've seen it in reaction to the interview with Jenk. I still see liberals saying liberals need to appeal to their base to get their vote out. What? <laughs> what? Donald Trump is the ultimate negative turnout machine. You cannot possibly. I mean, come on, people. You cannot be serious. If you can't get, if you're a liberal and you can't get out to vote for whoever the nominee is on the Democratic Party, just simply to beat Donald Trump, then I can't help you. Uh, there's nothing I can do to help you uh, on that one. We're better than that. No, I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure you are. Because if you can't get out to vote after what you've seen based upon what liberals say they believe about Donald Trump, then you don't deserve to win. All right. So the idea that you need a, a, a turnout mechanism in your candidate is just... Uh, it's just flat out ridiculous. And, and so the idea that somehow Biden or anybody else would have the same problems that Hillary had in 2016 is just not true. The reality is the complacency issue is gone. Hillary is much more unlikable than Joe Biden. That's just the reality of it. Uh, it that shouldn't matter that much, but it does. And uh, so while there are similarities, there are some important differences. And uh, I am not optimistic <laughs> that my argument is going to win. I, you know, you saw how Jenk responded to it or heard how Jenk responded to it. And, you know, from what I can see online, I, I haven't convinced anybody. But my philosophy on these things is tell the truth, shout it from the top of the mountaintop as loudly as you can. And at the very least, if you turn out to be right and they turn out to be wrong, uh, you know, they can't come bitching at you. So, you know, at the very least, no one's going to come bitching to me if if Joe Biden is not the nominee and Donald Trump ends up being reelected. And in my opinion, a, a reelected Donald Trump will be much worse than a first term of Donald Trump because he'll have no accountability and he'll have, he'll have no one around him to tell him no. And he'll go crazy on pardons. He'll go crazy with regard to relationships with these tyrants and dictators because there'll be nothing stopping him at all other than theoretical impeachment and removal and democrats are so cowardly uh, that that that's highly unlikely to happen i think it might be a little bit more likely in a second term but it's becoming less and less likely despite what they claim and despite the fact that robert Mueller is supposed to testify on july 17th in public session what they currently claim about uh, this year i am not of the belief that, that i've never believed that trump will be removed i am not of the belief anymore that he will be impeached uh, one other point before we uh, uh, end this particular episode of the of the podcast, I want to revisit a couple of things I discussed in the last episode. The citizenship question with regard to the 2020 session se census, which the Trump administration had tried to ask. And this, let's be clear. I mean, this to me 
is just so nuts and so politically correct and shows how far we have fallen from any semblance of rationality. But the fact that there was a fight over this is just absurd. The Trump administration, now, look, I understand why they wanted to do it. It's for pure political reasons. It's for their base. It's not well intended. You know, it's, it's, they want to ask on the census, which is every 10 years in this country, whether or not you're a citizen. And I get the cynics that say, wait a minute, the only reason why you're doing this is because you want to scare non-citizens, i.e. illegal immigrants, from not filling out the census, which would then result in their representation going down in the the following Congress. Well, of course, my point is, well... (laughs) Why should they be represented in the Congress to begin with? I get that the Constitution says persons, all right? And it is my opinion that the the founding fathers never intended persons to mean illegal immigrants coming here to get massive welfare state benefits. They ne- that was not part of the equation. And if they had known that, they would not be, uh, I don't even think that they would have used the word persons. I think they would have probably used the word citizens. But they use the word persons for reasons that are no longer remotely relevant today because we live in a world where you can come to this country illegally and you can get massive amounts of government-funded welfare state benefits. And so, and, and for all intents and purposes, and this, you know, there's, there's the practical political argument and there's the philosophical argument. No one wants to make this argument. I guess it's too nuanced. But I actually think there's a 14th Amendment to the Constitution issue with regard to counting this many illegal aliens in our census. And it's a little bit complicated, but basically it's this. If you live in a congressional district that has no illegal aliens, right? So your vote, your your power, the power of your vote in electing a representative to Congress is minuscule by by numerous expo- exponents it is minuscule in comparison to the vote of a citizen let's say here in southern california in a district where there's a lot of illegal aliens i'll take this out of the theoretical into the practical in in districts where there in competitive districts where there are no illegal aliens most congressional districts get well over 200,000 votes right that means your vote is one out of 200,000 one out of 200,000. That's a pretty small power. You know, your vote has very small power there. If you're in a district here in Southern California and you're a citizen with a lot of illegal immigrants, see, because every district is split up to have the equal number of persons, okay? Not citizens, persons. And if you're in one of those districts with a lot of illegal aliens, you're likely to have a general election where there's only 60, 80,000 votes, sometimes less than that. And so now all of a sudden your vote has far more power, far more power than the vote of, of a, a, a voter in a district that can have up to 300,000 votes. Now that's a violation, I believe, of the 14th Amendment. The idea that everyone's vote is equal. And it's only because of this, what I perceive to be a loophole in the census. Well, anyway, the Supreme Court kind of sort of blocked it. They did so in, in a, in a schemey sort of way where they delayed it to, to where effectively it was dead because Trump will be out of office by the next census. 
And it got reported over the last couple of days that Trump, as he so often does, is wimping out and bailing once, uh, you know, it looks like he's going to lose. Now, he's disputing that. So who knows what the hell the truth is. But supposedly now the Trump administration is no longer going to try to put a, uh, a citizenship question on the census in 2020. And for me, well, this is not the biggest deal in the world. I live in Southern California. We have a massive illegal immigration problem. I'm against illegal immigration. I agree with Trump philosophically on the issue. But to me, he has always represented the worst of both worlds on this issue. And I've said this consistently. We get the maximum political toxicity on our side because he is perceived, and now the Republican Party is perceived, as an anti-immigrant racist party. So you get the maximum negative aspects of Trump on illegal immigration, which is why just south of where I live in Orange County, all the Democratic, all the representatives are now Democratic for the first time ever in Orange County. It used to be one of the most Republican counties in the entire country. Now all the congressional representatives uh, on the coast are Democratic. That's in large part because of this perception of the Republican Party among swing voters as being anti-immigrant racists. So you get all the negative toxicity and we've gotten nothing in return because Trump either doesn't really believe it or he's a terrible negotiator or he's wimped out or all three. There's no wall. There is no wall. No wall is coming his emergency funding just got black, bu- blocked by a federal judge. I predicted all along there was never going to be a wall. He promised a wall a thousand times during the campaign. That was a fraud. That was a con. That was a scam. It's not going to happen. There will be no major wall. There's no mass deportations. He promised mass deportations. He bailed on mass deportations two weekends ago because Nancy Pelosi... Nancy Pelosi asked him not to do it. You cannot be serious. And yet somehow his image as the alpha male who's fighting for the cause of his of his cult didn't get tarnished at all. I love the poorly educated. It's it's absolutely unbelievable. Nancy Pelosi convinced him to wimp out on deportations. And then he went on Twitter. I think it was yesterday. and said, we're going to give the Democrats one more chance where the deportations are going to start. No, they're not. He will wimp out again. It's his MO. He does it every time, whether it's tariffs or whatever it is. He, when it com- push comes to shove, he always wimps out. So we get no wall, no deportations. By the way, border crossings are up under his watch. No citizenship question and maximum political toxicity. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. And by the way, this isn't going away. This is now the perception, especially among younger people, for probably most of the next generation, depending on whether or not Trump is reelected. And I'm beginning to think that the odds are better than, than not that he will be. They're not tremendous that he'll be reelected, but they're better than, than not. And on that note, the, that's how we will end, as we always do, uh, each episode of the Individual One podcast. We're going to keep the odds of Trump not re, uh, finishing his first term in office at 4%, a measly 4%. Uh, my guess is that after Mueller testifies on July 17th, and it's not nearly the bombshell that it would need to be, uh, that percentage will probably go down to basically 1% or, or statistically negligible. Uh, but I'll hold off at least until Mueller has his say 
uh, to the House of Representatives and the two committees to which he is scheduled to testify. And uh, the chances for re-election, I'm going to nudge that up another percentage point to 52 percent because Bernie Sanders, who I said in that interview with Jenk, is not going to be the Democratic nominee. He is showing signs of weakness, and I think that is bad for Biden because I think having Sanders there in the, the low to mid-20s, basically harmless, but blocking people like Kamala Harris— and people like Elizabeth Warren and definitely blocking uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the people who can actually win the nomination uh, from Joe Biden, I think that helps Biden. I think that's one of the more untold stories of this uh, Democratic nominating process so far, that Sanders actually helps Biden. He also makes him not seem quite as old or as wacky. So the fact that uh, Sanders seems to be weakening and Harris is surging, that is bad news for uh, Joe Biden, good news for Donald Trump. And that's why I now have currently the percentages at 52% that Donald Trump is reelected. A couple of quick scheduling notes. We will not be doing a podcast this weekend, but after next weekend, I anticipate we'll be basically back on our Wednesday, Sunday, uh, early afternoon, Los Angeles time scheduled for the podcast, in, at least for the uh, foreseeable future. And uh, next Wednesday, our next podcast, episode number 41, we are scheduled to be joined by uh, General Michael Hayden, who is the former director of the CIA and who is recovering from a stroke. He has been out of commission for the last several months, but now he's getting back into the saddle and we're really excited to speak to him. So join us for that in episode number 41. That'll do it for this edition of the Individual One Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show and follow us on Twitter. At Individual One Pod is our Twitter handle. That's Individual, the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network. 